and she asked Bob about doctrine, and I wanted Bob to deal with that issue, and it was a good question. So, Bob, why don't you just rehash for everyone what her question was? <laughs> well, the question, uh, which is a very common one, was there's a lot of people that criticize doctrine. Yeah. Okay, so you often hear, well, we don't go to church to hear doctrine. I don't hear it from anybody here, but you hear it a lot of times. You know, do- as if doctrine were some really bad thing. Right, right. Okay. And I think it's disingenuous when we used to have a pastor's meeting in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah. A lot of the pastors were charismatic. They tended to be very negative on doctrine. And there I was, you know, talking about doctrine in this pastor's meeting. Yeah. And this this one pastor was arguing with me and said, well... You just have dead orthodoxy. Doctrine kills the Holy Spirit. Oh, boy. And I said, well, why would you say a thing like that? And the answer was, well, because I was in this Lutheran church, and it was just dead, and we had all the right doctrine. So then you hear this complaint about dead orthodoxy. Now, I said, well, what exactly were the creeds and teachings that you heard in the Lutheran church that you claim killed you. Oh, like, you know, our creeds. I said, did it include Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, and his resurrection? (laughs) Yeah. So that killed you. I said, why would the truth of the gospel kill you? He said, well, I didn't believe it. (laughs) Oh, so it wasn't the doctrine that killed you. It was unbelief. Yeah. What dead, quote, dead orthodoxy is, is unbelief. Right, right. If you believe the truth, it won't kill you. It'll make you alive. Now, let me talk about one other thing having to do with, excuse me, I'm also the recording engineer here, <laughs> doctrine. Modern tr- translations often take the Greek word for teach or teaching, didaskalo, to teach, didaskalos, would be a teaching or dedicate the teaching and is translated teaching. But in some versions like the King James, the same word can be translated doctrine. Now, doctrine is nothing more than teaching. And the real issue is this. Those Groups that say doctrine will kill you, and we don't have doctrine. We've got the Holy Spirit. I also ask this question. Well, do you have someone who gets behind a podium and speaks? Oh, yeah. The pastor does every Sunday. Okay, so he goes behind a podium, opens his mouth, and speaks for so long. And what does he speak? Well, all kinds of stuff, whatever the Spirit inspires him or whatever. I said, so it isn't that you don't have any doctrine. It's just that you don't have biblical doctrine. <laughs> okay? Because doctrine is teaching. And so if you're teaching, it's disingenuous to say you don't have doctrine. Right, right. Your doctrine may mean don't spend all your time with theology. Just go by what the Spirit prompt you and you feel a certain way and you, you figure that must be the spirit that's still a doctrine right okay and so whenever you see this supposed issue of dead orthodoxy it's disingenuous don't even listen to it right. 
If it's really orthodox, it's only dead if you don't believe it. But if you believe the truth, you'll become alive. Hmm. All right, that's the answer to that question. So doctrine and teaching are the same thing. Well, thank you. We had one other comment from a previous sermon that Dana had uh, done, or Dana had wanted to mention. Mention what you were referring to, kind of the context. First of all, just to follow up on what Bob was saying, um, sometimes people who, who don't like doctrine will say, well, we don't want doctrine, we just want to worship Jesus. Well, even the idea that Jesus is worthy of worship is doctrine. I mean, exactly. <laughs> yeah, which Jesus, who is Jesus, or exactly, it's all doctrine. Uh, but the other thing I want to talk about, last week in both Sunday school and in your sermon, both Bob and Eric talked about this idea of whether righteousness is something internal to God or whether it emanates from some source outside of God. And they both rightly concluded from Scripture that God is the source of, of righteousness. It comes from God. But this, uh, this idea goes right to the heart of the debate about the sovereignty of God. Because Arminians will sometimes say, well, God can't predestine some to be saved because that wouldn't be fair. But that idea pre- presupposes that righteousness, uh, what's fair, resides outside of God. That, yes. that, that there's some standard outside of God that he, God himself is bound by. Well, exactly. that's not the case. It comes from, it comes from God. That's well said. Does well, everybody follow that? Yeah. The, the other thing relating to the book of Revelation, uh, last time we talked about, um, you talked about um, the various views of the book of Revelation. Yeah. And, and one of the views, of course, is dispensationalism. Yeah. Perhaps we should distinguish between dispensationalism and hyper-dispensationalism. Exactly. Uh, the, the, the essential difference is that an ordinary dispensationalist just sees one dispensation between um, Pentecost and the rapture. Sure. But hyper dispensationalists see at least two dispensations. They want they want like to divide up the Book of Acts. Yeah, yeah. They, they believe that there was an early Jewish church, and then later on there was yep. a, a Gentile church under Paul, and they're two, they operate under two completely gospel different. Gospel of grace versus yeah. gospel yeah. works. Yeah, yeah. Lesfelic is a good example of yeah. a, of a yeah. hyper dispensationalist. Yeah. But if you suspect that somebody is a hyper dispensationalist, a good question to ask them is: Is baptism for the church today? Because, because the hyper-dispensationalists will say, no, that was just for the Jewish church. Right, isn't that sad? Yeah. Thank you, Dana. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. Um, thanks for all the... I just love getting your comments and questions, and this is what Sunday School is all about. So with that, what I'm going to do is have us all bow our heads in prayer, and we'll pray for this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather together. We thank you for a beautiful day, even though it's cold, Lord, that it all comes from you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can dig into your scriptures and to know more about you and the great glorious kingdom that you're about to bring. We ask, Heavenly Father, you would help us think well upon the text of Revelation and all of the different Old Testament texts that we'll be dealing with this morning. We ask that you would enable these texts to weigh heavily upon us, that we might be conformed more to the image of your Son. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, remember last time, if you weren't here last time that we did our first introduction to the book of Revelation, or perhaps you need a reminder... Last time we were doing our introduction, I envisioned, by the way, our introduction going three different installments, we started to cover the timing, namely the dating of the book of Revelation. When was it written? And the reason I wanted to do that was to give you confidence that the proper interpretation of the book of Revelation is looking forward. From chapter 4 of the book of Revelation all the way to chapter 22 is looking forward to this glorious kingdom that Christ will bring imminently. And so what we were particularly exercised about 
was a teaching called partial preterism, which sees at least the first 12 chapters of the book of Revelation being fulfilled in 70 A.D. And so what I proved last time through the dating of the book, whether it was Irenaeus, the secular historian, or whether it was other external sources or even internal sources, within the book of Revelation, we proved that it had to be dated during the reign of Domitian, okay, around 95 A.D. And because the book of Revelation was written after 70 A.D., it eliminated any possibility for partial preterism or, for that matter, full preterism, that it was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Well, now today we're going to continue looking into the Old Testament. And what I want to do is, again, take a whack at both preterism and something called the Maccabean view that sees much of, again, the book of Revelation fulfilled either during the life of Christ or somehow by 70 A.D. We're going to see the majority of the book of Revelation is still looking forward to Jesus' second advent. And so I want to look at Old Testament background. Remember last time I had mentioned there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 278 of them contain allusions to the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. So one of the blessings of reading the book of Revelation is not only are we going to be learning about our glorious hope, but we're also going to be learning a lot about the Old Testament. The books in order, in other words, these are the books that you will see the most references to in order, uh, that is, references in Revelation to these different Old Testament books. The first is Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, Genesis. But make no mistake about it, there are many references also to Zechariah and Exodus and many of the Old Testament prophets, whether minor or major, Jeremiah, etc. But Daniel is first and foremost. And so if you remember last time, we left off in Daniel 2.28. And my claim is, is that Revelation is built off of Daniel 2.28. Remember, Revelation 1.1 borrows right from what is highlighted in red. So let me just remind you, what was Daniel 2 about? Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He was the king of Babylon. He had that vision of a statue. It was a dream, and it really bothered him. And the dream, Daniel is given the interpretation of it. Remember, according to even Ephesians chapter 3, God is the one who reveals mysteries through his prophets. And so because Daniel is a prophet, he reveals what the dream was about. Yeah, Jim's got a comment. Isn't part of Daniel written in Aramaic? Because the part of Daniel that deals with the Gentile world empires is written in Aramaic. What is written that relates to the Jews is written in Hebrew. Well said, exactly. And so when you get into chapter 7 and on, you're going to get back into Hebrew. That's exactly right. Yep. Um, so thank you for pointing that out. So, you know, what's interesting, Jim, too, is that the Aramaic, remember Jesus spoke in Aramaic, a different form of it, but they would have been very familiar with it, even in the diaspora, both languages. So it would have been able to be used to equip both Jews. But you're right, it was certainly a tip-off that Gentiles were certainly in view as well. So... But notice um, in Daniel 2.28, remember that vision was all about these four kingdoms that were going to come about. It was the Babylonian kingdom. Remember, that was the head of gold that that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision. Then after that, it was the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire, followed by the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Empire was one day going to have ten toes. And it was in those days that, as you see in in Daniel chapter 7, there's going to be an Antichrist that comes up. And that's what we read about in, for instance, Revelation chapter 13. But here's the point. 
Daniel gives this vision and the understanding of what it meant, the interpretation, and he says this to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. I mentioned last time Revelation 1.1 borrows identically from the Septuagint of what I have highlighted in red. Revelation 1.1, John says these are the things that must take place, but not in the latter days, but soon, imminently. So if you were to translate literally what's in red there, what will take place in the latter days, it literally says these are the things that must take place. It's the divine necessity in the latter days. But in Revelation 1.1, it says these are the things that must take place. No longer in the latter days. Why? Because we're living in the latter days. Does everybody understand that? Because when Jesus Christ came in his first advent, that ushered in the last days. So now that we're in the last days, the next event is the imminent breaking forth of this kingdom. Revelation, therefore, is built off of the book of Daniel. And so if we don't get Daniel right, we're not going to get Revelation right. All right, now, I want to continue... And go into verse 44. Notice the verse continues. He says down in verse 44, in the days of those kings, and he's talking about the ten toes, the Roman Empire. He says, in the days of those kings, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. The kingdom that's being referred to there is the Davidic kingdom. A Jew who read Daniel chapter 2 would know this eternal kingdom is the kingdom of David. Okay, so they expected, because remember in 2 Samuel 7, written some, oh, 400 years earlier, had prophesied that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. And so they understood from the Old Testament that this eternal kingdom would be David's kingdom. In fact, I have some readings. Uh, Was it Jim? Jim has some readings for us in the Old Testament. I got uh, Hosea 3.5. If you all turn your Bibles there, I want to show you where this expectation of the Davidic kingdom comes about. So before you read it, Jim, let me set the stage. Everybody's turning their Bibles to Hosea 3.5. Remember, Hosea was somewhat a contemporary of Isaiah, although he lived slightly before Isaiah. And he prophesied to Ephraim, that was the northern kingdom, while Isaiah's primary ministry was to the southern kingdom of Judah. But recall, Hosea had a wife who cheated on him, Gomer. She was unfaithful. Well, God used the unfaithfulness of Hosea's wife as an object lesson pointing to the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. They were spiritual harlots who went after false gods and in broken covenant with Yahweh. Well, when you get to Hosea chapter 3, God commands Hosea to demonstrate unconditional love to his wife Gomer and to take her once again to be with him, even though she's been unfaithful. That was an object lesson of how God would take unfaithful Israel and still be faithful to them, even though they were unfaithful, and receive them back. And so that's where we pick it up in Hosea 3.5. Listen to this beautiful promise. I'll actually start with verse 4. For the Israelites must live many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred fertility pillar, without ephod or idols. Verse 5. Afterwards, the Israelites will turn and seek the Lord their God and their Davidic king. Then they will submit to the Lord in fear and receive his blessings in the future. 
Beautiful. Now, let me make two points on that Hosea 3.5. Notice, first of all, Jim had just mentioned this was for the future, or some of your versions will say in the last days or the latter days. Well, what's Daniel 2.28 talking about? It's also talking about what happens in the latter days, isn't it? But notice the most important point here in Hosea 3.5. Notice it says that they will seek Yahweh their God and David their king. If God, through his prophet Hosea, merely wanted to point out that Israel would one day build up the kingdom of David again or would return to the kingdom of David, he simply could have stated that they will seek the Lord their God and establish the household of David. But notice that's not what is stated. It says they will seek Yahweh their God and David their king. Singular. David their king. David had been dead for 250 years. So who was being referred to, of course, it was the Messiah who would sit in David's lineage. And so this is the expectation that one day there's going to be one who comes from David. He is the Messiah. In fact, he's God himself, as we're going to see in the next passage in Isaiah 9. And he's going to establish this kingdom forever. So, Jim, also go to, everyone turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. And again, before you read that, Jim, let me set the stage there. Isaiah 9, when you get to verse 8, it's all about judgment that comes upon the people of God because of their idolatry. Well, what God does graciously is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, he promises that those who would be the first to experience judgment at the hand of the Assyrians, namely Naphtali and Zebulun, Isaiah 9.1, would be the first to experience messianic salvation. And sure enough, when Jesus' ministry dawns during the New Testament times, it dawns primarily first in Galilee, fulfilling Isaiah 9. So it's as if God is saying, look, you're going to be the first to suffer this judgment, but you're also going to be the first to experience messianic salvation. And it's in light of that great promise then that we see Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Okay, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. His, he shoulders responsibility and is called extraordinary strategist, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be fast, and he will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward and forevermore. The Lord's intense devotion to his people will accomplish this. Wow. Thanks, Jim. Notice in 9.6, this Messiah is going to be a man. You know, unto us a son is born. But he's also what? He's a wonderful counselor, which literally means he's a miracle worker. Okay? The same term is used when God brings about this child miraculously to Sarah. He's a miracle worker. Why? Because he's God. He's also called mighty God. So it's the God-man that we're being taught about, the Messiah himself in Isaiah 9-6. Well, what throne is he going to sit on? In Isaiah 9-7, it's David's throne. And how long will it last? Isaiah 9-7, it says forever. So here's the point. You can read about this also. I'm not going to get into this passage for the sake of time. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 25, teaches the same thing. What I want you to see is that the expectation in the Old Testament was that the Davidic throne would be established by Messiah and that kingdom would last forever. And that's exactly what Daniel is teaching. 
And that's exactly what the book of Revelation is built on. The book of Revelation is really showing us that this Davidic kingdom is going to come about. In fact, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. I want to show you just real quickly how prevalent David is. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. In Revelation 3, 7, you have, remember, John speaking to the church at Philadelphia. Revelation 3, 7, John writes this. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So notice, who is it that has the keys of David? Well, that's Jesus. He has the keys of David. Now, that's a reference back to Isaiah 22, and we'll get into more detail when we actually cover that text. But the issue is, Messiah has the keys to the kingdom of David meaning he's the doorkeeper. So the only way that you get into this eternal kingdom is through him. He's the one who includes and he is the one who excludes. Now fast forward just two chapters, Revelation 5.5. Remember here the scene is at the throne room of God. There's a lot of angst and even weeping because no one is seen as worthy of being able to break the seals of this scroll. And lo and behold, the Messiah is. Jesus can... Revelation 5, 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, this is to John, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Notice that term root. He is the root of David. The term root there in Greek, it's rizza. Rizza. Say it five times, you own it, you can use it at parties. Riza is all about not being a descendant that proceeds from David, but it means the originator of David. Okay, that's a direct reference back to Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, you see two concepts taught. The Messiah is going to come from the lineage of David. He's the shoot, but he's also the root. Isaiah 11.10. He's the offspring of David, but he's also the one who originates David. Isn't that beautiful? Showing the divinity of the Messiah, but also his humanity there. Now, fast forward one more place. At the very end of the book, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. the whole book of Revelation has been basically taught. And how does Jesus conclude the words? Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Jesus says this. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is the originator of David. He is the one who comes from David. Why? Because he is the one who's going to bring about this glorious kingdom that lasts forever that Daniel's been talking about. Brothers and sisters, if you and I get Daniel wrong, we will get the book of Revelation wrong. We will get our doctrine wrong. We will get our eschatology wrong. And we will get our hope wrong. Our hope isn't found in 70 A.D. and somehow the destruction of the Jews. Our hope is found in this imminent, glorious coming of the Davidic kingdom that Jesus alone is able to bring about. Okay, now, with that, let me turn then to interpreting Daniel 9. If there's one chapter in the book of Daniel that we have to get right, it's Daniel chapter 9. In fact, there's a great Old Testament scholar named Leopold, and Leopold said Daniel chapter 9 is the most exquisite prophecy in the entire bible and the reason he says it that way is because daniel 9 really lays out the entirety 
of God's redemptive plan in very, very precise order. So I want to begin by talking about how to interpret Daniel 9. And remember, Daniel 9 doesn't happen in a vacuum, does it? It happens with a man who was a prophet of God, Daniel, who ends up praying that the people of God would be restored. And as he gives a beautiful prayer, Daniel prays that they would be restored, not just because he wants to see Israel return to their glory days, but because he has a longing to see God be faithful and that God's name would be elevated. And so we pick it up in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Daniel says this, he says, In the first year of Darius, the king of Azurus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now I want to begin by talking about Darius. Notice Daniel comes up with this vision and ends up happening in the first year of Darius's reign. Now Darius is actually Cyrus. They're one in the same. Now some of you may be saying, well, how do you know that? Well, jot this down. I won't have you turn to it. But in Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, in our Masoretic text, in other words, if you have your English Bible, your Old Testament books are going to be taken from the Masoretic text. Okay, they might be amended here and there with the Septuagint, but they will primarily come from the Masoretic text. In Daniel 11.1, 1, the Masoretic text talks about Darius the Mede. What's very interesting is the Septuagint, again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and remember, these are good scholars, around 250 B.C., they translate Daniel 11.1 1 with Cyrus. Now, why? Did they make a mistake? No, because Cyrus and Darius are really one and the same. What we have to realize is that Darius and Cyrus are really not names. They're really descriptors of who they would be. They're really a reference to their authority. For instance, Darius probably comes from the root Dara, which is in the Persian language, the royal one. And so Darius would be the royal one. Cyrus may have a reference even to the sun, and the sun who eclipses that which has come before. So the idea of Cyrus, interestingly enough, his very title indicates that he is like the sun that abolishes the night that went before. Now, think about the significance of that. Here's why. Some 200 years prior to Daniel writing, Isaiah gives a prophecy in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, where God calls Cyrus by name. And what is Cyrus's job? He's going to wipe out the enemies of Israel and bring them back into their land. Like the sun that rises and dispels the darkness, in a sense, Cyrus is like this foreshadowing of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, who brings Israel back into the land. That's how precise God's word is. And so, again, these are not names, but they're really titles for this great Persian ruler. Now, by the way, he's also this Cyrus, who was also Darius. Darius is Median or Median title. Cyrus would be a Persian. His mother was a Mede. Is everybody with me? Now, why would that be important? Well, because the Jews reckon genealogy 
from the maternal side. And so that explains then why it is that Daniel calls him Darius rather than Cyrus. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, somebody had, uh, Brian, you had Daniel 6.28. I just want to turn your attention to Daniel 6.28 because I want you to be aware of another translation of how you could read this. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay. So do you notice how Daniel 6.28 seems to imply that there's two different people? Daniel had success during the reign of Darius and also the reign of Cyrus, right? But another way of interpreting it is the vav that's used for and can also be translated namely. So you could translate it that Daniel found favor in the reign of Darius, namely Cyrus. Does that make sense? In fact, uh, precedence for that is found in 1 Chronicles. I'm going to make sure I get this right. 1 Chronicles 5.26. You see the same type of construction. I won't have you turn to it, but you can write it down. The same type of construction is used for the grammar that you would find in Daniel 6.28. So I think that that's probably the best way to translate that. So it's not that Darius and Cyrus are the different people, but that they're the same person. Okay? Yeah, Peter. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Chronicles 5.26. 1 Chronicles 5.26. You got it. Now, here's the reason why I belabor this point. We want to get this date down, and here's why. I believe that Cyrus or Darius, the same person, gives this decree, and his first reign happens around 538 to 537 B.C. Now, think about the significance of that. In this prophecy, Daniel was aware of Jeremiah's prophecy. Okay, now what did Jeremiah say? Well, Jeremiah 25, 11, Jeremiah prophesied this about the land of Israel. He said, the whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Okay, so the point is Daniel's all excited because the first deportees left Israel for Babylon in 605 B.C., Well, all of a sudden, he's 68 years into that 70 years. It's around 538, 537, right in there. And he knows that this prophecy is almost fulfilled. The 70 years is almost up. So what's interesting is I want you to think about the timing of this. Darius gives a decree. It's about 537. It takes some time for the Israelites to organize themselves in Babylon and to start this return. Plus, they have to travel some 500 to 600 miles from Babylon all the way back to Israel. And so more than likely, the timing is that they start getting into the land of Israel in 535 B.C. When were they deported? 605 B.C. Well, what's the math on that? Well, that's 70 years, just as prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. All right, Bob. Uh, Excuse me. I wrote an article about this. Uh, for CIC back when the prayer of Jabez was in, in, running around and they were going to change some African country and that bombed out. What this shows is that a literal understanding of Scripture actually informs our prayer. Mm. And Amen. compatibilism doesn't mean we decide what we want and obligate God to it because he's stuck with us because we we're so we got so much faith he has to do what we say. 
compatibilism means that God's revealed his will and purpose and that our prayers are part of what God uses to fulfill that. But those who study Scripture are in its original context. Daniel took this literally, but yet he prayed. He might say, well, if God said it's going to be 70 years, then it will be. Well, true. But he still prayed. So people who claim that our teaching on compatibilism and order the sovereignty of God means we won't pray are ignorant yes. of both the sovereignty of God and prayer. Yeah. And they should read this. Now, on the prayer, Jabez was taken out of context and made to be something it wasn't and turned into kind of a mantra, and the whole thing flopped and failed. Daniel's prayer didn't. Right. They, as Eric was just saying, they actually did go back into the land exactly as it said. And also, this tells us that we should take these numbers literally. Exactly. That's a point. That's, in fact, that's the last point I want to make, Bob, is you and I were doing radio together, and uh, one of the episodes he and I were doing radio together, we were talking about Daniel. I don't know how we ended up on this subject, but Bob said to me, whoops, I'm standing on my cord. Um, he said to me, look, Daniel took the numbers from Jeremiah literally. Then why did Daniel not use literal numbers? And I slapped myself on the head. I said, Bob, it's a brilliant point. So think about that. Daniel takes Jeremiah's numbers and says they're literal. Now you have Daniel's prophecy that I'm going to show you that has to do with 490 years, 70 times 7. And all of a sudden you have these scholars like Preterist and those who hold to the Maccabean era. Does everybody know what the Maccabean era means? These are people that believe the the 490-year prophecy, the 70 weeks that I'm going to come to, the Maccabean proponents believe that it began in 605, Okay, which is off right away because what you're going to see in Daniel is the beginning of the 70 weeks prophecy begins with the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, 605 B.C. was the beginning of the destructions of Israel and Jerusalem, the deportations. Okay, But what they do is they take their math from 605 and they try to fit it in to the reestablishment of the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes IV in 164 B.C. Well, the math doesn't work out. They're off by 50 years. So you know what they say, the Maccabean proponents? Well, it's just round numbers. They're rounding. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jim, you know a little bit about that in accounting, right? Rounding. But in this case, they're rounding off quite a bit. And the point is, Daniel didn't round off or use spiritually fulfilled numbers. He used real, literal numbers, didn't he? Okay, and so that's the precedent that is set. The preterist also, as I'm going to show you, do real injustice to this text because they try to spiritualize some of the numbers. And we'll have to deal with that as well. So Daniel used real numbers. That's the point. He used one, them from Jeremiah, and he uses them himself. Now, let's come to Daniel 9.24. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, just a question. Yeah. Roman Catholicism, they, they hold to uh, preterist uh, uh, eschatology and Maccabean? They do. Okay. Um, what's interesting, you mentioned that, is there was a Jesuit. <laughs> Peter knows quite a bit about the Jesuits. There was a Jesuit shortly after the Reformation, during the Counter-Reformation. They liked preterism, these Catholics did, because what was happening was the Reformers were taking all of the book of Revelation, the references to the beast, and they were forcing that in history upon the Roman Catholic Church. And so the escape valve for the Roman Catholic Church was to say, ah, ah, we have preterism, and therefore these things were fulfilled in 70 A.D., 
therefore the beast can't be our, our pope. <laughs> okay? So what's interesting is when you have proponents of preterism, realize that they're really gaining their doctrine from Roman Catholicism. That's actually where it first stemmed from. So thank you. Great question, Mike. Thanks for reminding me of that. Okay, now what I want to do is turn your attention to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Because, yeah, Peter. Yep. Is uh, Maccabeans one of the Apocrypha books or not? Yeah, Maccabees. Okay. Yep, yep. That would have been written during the intertestamental period. Yep. Yep. So um, in Daniel 9.24 then, what we're going to see is six promises that Daniel ends up laying out. So remember, he gets into this beautiful prayer from where we left off in Daniel 9, 1 through 2. Daniel prays a beautiful prayer, and then Gabriel gives the answers from God about what the redemptive plan is. And so now we have the redemptive plan given by Gabriel right from God. Daniel 9, 24, he says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, before I talk about the six promises, notice 70 weeks have been decreed. Literally, it's 70 units of seven. That's what you read in the Hebrew. Now, what's interesting is when you read the Old Testament, the Jews used units of seven often, but they're only related to days and years. For instance, every seven years you had to, according to Leviticus 25, if you're an Israelite, give your land a sabbatical rest. Every seven days you had to have a sabbatical rest, right? So what we can eliminate then is that the units are dealing with either years or days. They're not dealing with months or weeks even. So it's either days or it's years, the 70 units of seven. Well, the context would support that we're dealing with years because more than likely, Daniel is building off of Jeremiah's 70 years. Is everybody with me? What's more, the Jewish Mishnah records that they understood this as to referring to years. So the point is, 70 times 7 is years. It's 490 years have been decreed. Now, notice the decree is for whom? It's for the people of Israel. He says, your people and your holy city. Now, let's stop there for just a moment because you have people on two different sides that often become apoplectic about saying, look, this prophecy is for the people of Israel. But let's think hard about this. When the kingdom comes, the Lord Jesus Christ's headquarters is not going to be in Minnesota. It's not going to be in Moscow. The headquarters is where, yeah, it would be too cold here anyway, right? The headquarters is, yeah, why would you pick here? The headquarters is going to be in Jerusalem. In Israel. Now, saying that, so we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. On the one hand, we say, yes, this is a plan for the people of Israel, and it's literally going to be a kingdom established with the headquarters in Jerusalem. But remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. He says, A Jew is not one who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely physical or outward, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart not by the written code, but by the Spirit. His point is, a true Jew is one who is trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So the point is that this kingdom is coming to Israel, it's coming to Jerusalem, and God is not done with the people of Israel. One day in Mass, as it says in Zechariah 12.10, 
they will look upon the one whom they had pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. But if you want to be a partaker of this kingdom, you, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, have to believe in Jesus and be added to the church now. If you want to be part of that kingdom that's coming to Israel, you have to be added to the church here and now. Does that make sense? So that's how we have to understand it. Yeah, Brian. The grafting in. Grafting in, exactly. That's exactly what Paul calls it in Romans 11. Amen. Yeah, we've been grafted into the root. Yep. Well said. So now, what are the six promises? Well, notice he says the first one is to finish the transgression. Transgression comes from Peshah, and it has the definite article on it. Literally, it's ha-Peshah. The ha part is the definite article. Peshah is transgression. It's the transgression. Now, the significance of that, I think, is that this is a reference to the transgression primarily of Israel who has broken covenant with Yahweh. They've broken covenant. Now, let me ask you the question. Is Israel now in a covenant relationship with Yahweh? In other words, are they faithful to the covenant or are they still transgressing? Absolutely, they're unfaithful. And until they turn to Messiah, they're going to be still transgressing. Okay, now that will one day happen. So here's the point. Could this have been fulfilled in 70 AD as the preterists would tell you? No. It must allude to a second advent in the future. Okay, now notice the next promise. It's to make an end of sin. Now, sin here in Hebrew is kotah. Now, kotah has to do with an archery term, which means to miss the mark. Okay, so think about God who is holy In his righteousness, he always shoots bullseyes. But you and I, because we're sinners, we we miss the mark. And I think that may be in Paul's mind as he penned Romans 3.23, where he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. So this is universal sin for Jews and Gentiles. So do you see how God has hit Jews first, now Jews and Gentiles? We've all sinned and rebelled against God. Well, let me ask you. Are people no longer sinning today? Has that been put away? Well, I can look in the mirror and tell you that that's not true. I don't have to go too far. So the point, dear ones, is this could not be fulfilled in 70 AD. It still awaits a future fulfillment. Now, notice that it says to make atonement for iniquity. Remember atonement, two aspects, God-centered propitiation, he's appeased, man-centered expiation, our sins are removed and we're covered over. That happened during the first advent of Jesus Christ. He's put away sins once and for all. He's done that. So that's Hikurt. Now, notice the next promise. It's to bring in everlasting righteousness. Sadiq is righteousness, meaning that you conform to the moral law of God. Are people living that way now? Of course not. So that awaits a future fulfillment. Uh, to seal up vision and prophecy, do you realize that the majority of the prophecies in the Old Testament and in the New still await fulfillment? in the second advent of Christ. And finally, the last promise, the sixth one, is to anoint the most holy place. Now, this is a significant one because the preterists will claim that the anointing of the most holy place is the anointing of Jesus at his baptism. All right? What's the problem with that interpretation? Well, the holy place, Kadosh Kadashim, it's literally the holy of holies. Oops, I've got a part here for my slide. It actually occurs 39 times in the Old Testament. Every single time, it is a reference to the temple. Never is it used as a reference to a person. So I want you to think about authorial intent. 
Daniel is writing to Jews, do you think that in any way they would read this and say, oh, that must be a person? Kadosh Kadashim is the anointing of a person? No, it was the anointing of the temple. Well, what temple? The temple that Ezekiel prophesies in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. This future temple that will one day be built, that the Messiah will reign in. Okay, that's what's being referred to there. So here's what I want you to take away. Of the six great promises of God's redemptive plan, one of them, and it's a very important one, it makes all the others possible, but only the atonement has taken place. The other five await fulfillment. All right, so therefore we can conclude that Daniel's 70 weeks cannot be fulfilled by 70 AD. All right? I would go so far as to say if someone believes that they are, it's a, it's a sense of heresy. Because if you're going to say that this was fulfilled in 70 AD, 70 AD, you'd have to claim that we do have this type of righteousness that's being alluded to here, that there really is an end of sin. And I would have to argue that that's... If, if someone came to you and they said, you know what, I don't think people sin anymore, would you say, welcome to the fellowship? You're in like Flynn. You'd say, you know, you've got some serious problems. We have to address that. So why do we allow the distortion of Daniel 9? It's a postmodern mindset where people say, you know, who can really know? Brothers and sisters, we can know and we must. Okay? Now, let me show you how the preterists handle the 70 weeks prophecy. I want you to be aware. Now, there's some variations, and I'll point them out of their view. Their 70 weeks, they believe, begins with a decree by Cyrus in 458 B.C., and it's fulfilled in 33 A.D. Okay, 33 A.D. Now, if you do the math, that's 490 years. All right, here's the breakdown of it. The first seven weeks they would see as the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That happens from 458 B.C. to 409 B.C. The second installment would be the 62 weeks. That's from 409 to 26 A.D. Now, notice I have 26 A.D. highlighted red. The reason I have that highlighted red is that's where they believe Jesus was anointed. Remember we just talked about the anointing of the most holy place? They believe that that's Jesus and that he's being anointed there and that's the fulfillment of the 69th week. Now, turn your Bibles real quickly to Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Brian, do you have it there? Maybe just have you read it. I won't open it. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Itura, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Come on, are you kidding me, right? In the high priesthood of Annas and Canias, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. That's beautiful. You can stop right there. Thank you. I'm sorry to throw all those names on you. (laughs) The big point I want everyone to to see, you deserve a medal for that. (laughs) What I want everyone to see there in that Luke 3.1 passage is that this John the Baptist starts his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Well, there's consensus. It's, it's 29 AD because he began his reign in 14. So I want you to think about the significance of that with this prophecy. If John the Baptist starts his ministry in 29 AD, 
Well, then Jesus starts his ministry and his baptism subsequently shortly thereafter. Well, then why are they putting it at 26 AD? You see, they're three years too early, at least. They're rounding. Yeah, more rounding. (laughs) Exactly. So they're off. Now, let me just cite one other source that's very important. Jesus was crucified in 33 AD. That's the best date for the crucifixion. One of the proofs of that comes from a secular historian named Flagin. Flagin records another man named Thallus who recorded the Olympics. He was a fan of the Olympics, apparently, and he chronicled all of them. Well, what's interesting is Flagin records that in the 202nd Olympiad, in the fourth year of it, remember they're four years long, in the 202nd Olympiad there was a great darkness that wasn't attributed to any astronomical event that they could tell. It was a great darkness that came over all of the land. Well, if you do the math, the 202nd Olympiad began in 29 AD. The fourth year was 33 AD. Well, that corresponds very nicely to the darkness that comes while Jesus is on the cross. Okay? So the point is we have extra biblical corroboration of the 33 AD date. Now, the reason I mention that is if they, in fact, are going to have Jesus begin his ministry in 26 AD, well, he's crucified in 33 AD. All of a sudden, you have a seven-year ministry. But that's far too long. More than likely, Jesus' ministry went three years. Okay? So that's strike one. Let me give you strike two. The Holy of Holies, they're claiming, refers to Jesus. But remember, we just said that the Holy of Holies is always a reference to the literal temple. So the anointing wasn't of the Messiah that was being referred to. It was of the temple. And finally, the third thing I'd like to point out is Jesus is not cut off during the 70th week. Notice the one week left over. We point it out here on the screen, right here. That one week that's left over, they would have you believe that Jesus has his ministry during that 70th week and he's cut off during that 70th week. Is everybody with me or at the end of it? What you're going to see in Daniel as we lay this out, is that Jesus comes after the 69th week and he's cut off, but it transpires before the 70th week. And that's another proof that is absolutely the death nail, I think, to preterism. They have him die in his ministry during the 70th week when it actually happens before. Okay? So the point is, there's really no way for preterism to be true with all of these problems. You have to do, as Jim pointed out, some rounding. Yeah, okay, so think about this. There's, in Daniel's, I'm going to show you, there's 69 weeks of years, or 483 years. It says that Jesus comes after that period, and then he's cut off. But then it talks after that about a coming 70th week. So the point is there's an interval that's built into the text between the 69th and the 70th. It's in that interval that the Messiah is cut off. The preterists have him cut off in the 70th week, which simply isn't biblical. It's not in the text itself. The text actually argues for a gap between 69 and 70 weeks with a consecutive vav. It does it with an and. Does that make sense? So that's, I think, a really a big problem with preterism as well. Okay, now we're getting short on time, but I'll just kind of, con- I'll kind of wrap this up here. Daniel 9.25. We may go just five minutes long, but let me just continue here. It says, so you, this is continuing on now. Daniel says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So the decree 
that is the starting point for Daniel's prophecy is a decree that will be given to rebuild Jerusalem. Was that given in 605 B.C. as the Maccabean would hold? No, of course not. When was it given? Well, more, more than likely, the best date on it was March 5th, 444 B.C. And that was the decree that was, you can read about in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now, what's so appealing about the decree that's given by Artaxerxes in Nehemiah is this. Notice it says in the text that Jerusalem will be rebuilt in times of distress. Nehemiah chapter 4 and Nehemiah chapter 9 show that it was in great distress that the Jews were rebuilding the wall. In fact, the people of Samaria were heaping insults against them. It was in great distress. They were at battle at some times and skirmishes. And so it was a very, very dicey situation indeed. So the point is that Nehemiah chapter 2 is the best fit. Now here, let's just do the math in our heads. This happens to be March 5th, 444 B.C. If you take the 483 years and you use 30-day months because that's what Daniel uses and Revelation uses, you'll end up with 173,880 days from the time that decree was given until Messiah was to come. What that turns out to be is the 10th day of Nisan, 33 AD. What day is the 10th day of Nisan? That's Lamb Selection Day. Now turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. I want you to show you what happens on Lamb Selection Day. This is the very day prophesied that the Messiah would come. I've got so many bookmarkers in my book right now, I don't know which is which now. Turn your uh, Bibles to Luke 19. Let's start in verse 37. This is Jesus, what they call the triumphal entry. Luke 19:37 says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of Yahweh. Let me stop there. That's a quotation of Psalm 118.26. It's a messianic psalm. Notice Luke inserts something that's not original to the Hebrew for clarification for his Gentile audience. He says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. If you read Matthew 21, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? Why does he do that? Well, because he's speaking to a Gentile audience. They wouldn't understand the Messianic reference. Let me explain it this way. John the Baptist is wondering, he's going to be beheaded, and he wonders if Jesus is the Messiah, and he says, is he the one? What he's referring to is Psalm 118.26, this psalm that the people of Israel used to sing on the way up to the mount during the Feast of Tabernacles. Is he the one, the one who comes in the name of the Lord? It's a messianic reference. And so the disciples certainly see Jesus as the Messiah. What's the problem? The rest of Israel misses it. It goes on to say, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. Verse 41, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. Let me stop there. In the text, in the Greek, there's a this as a demonstrative pronoun. There's a definite article. And we can just read it and say on this day and just keep reading. But I think it's accentuated. 
if you had known on this day, the very day of lamb selection, it's the 10th day of Nisan. And so for hundreds of years, every 10th day of Nisan, since Exodus chapter 12, the Jews were to select a lamb without blemish. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on lamb selection day, the lamb of God without blemish, the very day prophesied in Daniel 9. And he says, if you had known on this day, the things that bring you shalom, peace. Peace, first of all, with God, secondarily with man. But he says they missed it. He says, but they are hidden from your eyes, divine passive. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you. Now he's prophesying about 70 AD and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When Bob taught through Luke, Remember, he taught us this concept of visitation is either one of salvation or it's one of judgment. God came in visitation to his people on Lamb Selection Day, and they missed it. And so the great blessing turned into judgment because they missed that day. Okay, but it was the very day prophesied in the book of Daniel. One other point I want to make on this text is notice Messiah comes after the 69 weeks, the 7 plus 62 It says, until Messiah, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, remember, the preterists have him coming in the 70th week. That's not what the text says. Okay, I just want to point that out one more time. Okay, finally, well, we're kind of out of time. I suppose we can conclude. Yeah, you know what we'll do is we will um, pick this up where we left off. We'll just finish it up next week. We'll be in fine shape. So let uh, let us bow our heads in prayer. Here's what I want to conclude, though, before we do. What I want to show you again is that any f- idea that these things were fulfilled in 70 AD simply isn't plausible. And the whole reason I'm going through this exercise is to, again about the one word confidence. I want you to have great confidence as we go to interpret this Bible, the, uh, this book of the Bible, Revelation, that these things were fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the future. All right, so let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word and your prophets, and that you have not left us in darkness as the pagans, but, Lord, you've given us your word. It's a lamp unto our feet to know your way, a way even in this postmodern world that rejects your truth. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would be those who have these words upon our lips and in our hearts, that you would enable these words to help us to persevere through challenging times, through dark days. We ask, Lord, that for our brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution, that these words would be a way of lifting them up and allowing them to lift their heads and to look to you. We ask, Lord, that you and I, all of us in here, would be about your business until you come. We ask, Heavenly Father, for protection upon our congregation and blessings, and also for blessings upon Bob as he preaches the word to us, and protection upon our brothers and sisters this morning in this cold day as they travel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.